following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We're going to dive straight into it. Uh, if you've got a uh, Bible, turn with me. We're going to look at uh, Exodus 5:22 to 7:13. And uh, for those who do ha- have read this before, we're going to skip the genealogy. So, thank me for that in, in later. All right. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their... uh, Oh, where am I here? But they're not listened to because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Skipping ahead to verse 28. Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment. I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. And that's the word of the Lord. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in life groups. Um, Small little plug for Ruben, you can pay me later. Um, I'm a big believer in life groups and the power to, to build community within a church, and I've been in and out of them most of my life. In fact, I even led a number of them, and I'm not trying to say I want to lead one now because it's a lot of hard work, but the, um, the first one I ever led was one when I was in high school, and uh, it became a really successful group over, over the months. Um, at one point, we had about 30 kids coming week after week to my friend's house to talk about their faith in Christ, talk about what it meant to live out this, uh, this Christian walk uh, in the circumstances they were in. Um, 
it just didn't start out very successful. So I remember the first meeting we ever had was an absolute train wreck. It was such a disaster. Uh, the, the previous leader, he was moving on to university, and he wanted someone from within the group to lead it. So he came to me and my friend and said, look, I really feel God is, has called you guys to lead this group. I've been praying about it a lot. So you know, we were really stoked. We were excited, and it came time for us to lead our first meeting. So I got to my friend's house a little bit early, and uh, I'd hastily scribbled down a few pieces of, uh, a few bits of information on a bit of uh, passage of scripture. And uh, we both sat there in his lounge, waiting for the guests to arrive, thinking, we are on the cusp of something big here, man. This is like, that door opens, and uh, we're going to high-five the apostles, we're going to shake hands with Paul, I'm going to be vibing with Jesus, it's going to be awesome, it's going to be great. And um, I could see a smile on my brother's face, because he was there too, and he knows what's coming. Uh, we sat there and we waited for the guests to arrive and we got a little bit more nervous and we waited, we waited and uh, nobody showed up. And then after what seemed like an hour of waiting, it was probably 15 minutes, but one guy turned up and I think as he opened the door and walked in, he kind of instantly regretted this was the day he'd chosen to come to life. He just was, ah, he sat there and he felt awkward. We had a couple of really nervous conversations and... Um, and eventually, I think one of us just turned on the TV and said, let's just watch TV for a bit. We didn't open the Bible. We didn't talk about our faith. I don't think we even prayed. It was a pretty rough start. And um, I just remember going home and feeling really disappointed, um, really deflated. Why would God call me to lead a life group, call me to something great and awesome, uh, and then just let me fail? So in some small way, I can relate to Moses in this story. Uh, he's only had one day on the job, and it's been pretty rough. You know? uh, in the space of a chapter last week, we had Moses uh, with Israel at his back. They believed him. End of the chapter, they wanted nothing to do with him. And we had Pharaoh, who just was like, no, I'm not letting your people go. And very shrewdly, as we heard uh, last week, tried to drive a little wedge between Israel and Moses to kind of crush the slave rebellion from, here, <coughs> from happening. So at the start of this chapter, we've got Moses venting his frustrations to God, uh, pouring out his heart to God. Uh, really, he's blaming God. You know, he says, why have you brought trouble on this people? Last week we heard it's literally, why have you done evil to this people? It's a pretty heated thing to say to God, right? So, Moses, I don't think you could understand. Why would God call him to have you know, such an important role in his plan? only to allow him to fail at this point, right? And we can relate too, right? I mean, we may not have heard God speak audibly to us, but many of us would have felt God prompt us to take a new job, uh, to move towns, to move countries even, uh, to open a business, or uh, just to walk across the, the room in the office and tell that person about Jesus, only to have it backfire, really. I mean, maybe that job didn't turn into a great career opportunity. Maybe the business is now a black hole for your money. Uh, maybe that person just looked at you like you were from another planet when you wanted to talk about Jesus. I remember once there was this guy in my youth group. I, just, I, I, was, I was at this, the, the service, and I felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to tell him Jesus loved him and ask if I could pray. And the look that came across his face when I said that was like I just told him his dog had died or something. He was polite enough to let me pray for him, but, but that was it. That was the only thing that happened, and no great miraculous conversion. I think he just carried on as per normal. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of times in life where I think things like that happen. Uh, we feel like we're being faithful to God, we're following Him, we're stepping out in faith, 
Uh, and we're left, when things don't turn out as we expect, we're left in the same position as Moses going, you know, why, Lord, why? Why did you ever send me? What on earth are you up to? I know last week uh, Reuben talked about returning to God uh, in the midst of pain and suffering. Um, you know, just, just being in God's presence, coming back to God uh, when things are not, not great, when things are rough. And uh, for us, when things are uh, really good, we're there to intercede for those who aren't um, doing so well. And I think, absolutely, I want to affirm what Reuben uh, says, because I'd like to possibly preach again at some point. Um, <laughs> it's all right to have some disagreements in the church, it's okay. Uh, but I just want to offer one slightly different translation of that, that first verse here, uh, 522. If you've got your Bibles open me, most of your translations are going to say, Moses returned to the Lord, or turned to, returned or turned. Actually, a lot of scholars think that it should be Moses turned on God. Subtle shift, eh? But it kind of changes the whole meaning of that passage, right? Because as you've got Israel who have turned their back on Moses, who want nothing to do with him, because as hard as it was being a slave, it was way harder being a slave when Moses was messing with the system. You know, they're trying to put some distance between themselves and him. They're trying to align themselves with Pharaoh again so that all they have to do is make bricks and not gather straw as well. Moses is doing the same thing to God. He's trying to put some distance between himself and God. He's trying to throw in the towel. He's trying to say, this is it. I didn't sign up for this. And I think the reason why I say that's important is because God's response then is all the more wonderful. What's God's first response? It's one of grace. God's first response to Moses is not to condemn, is not to say, all right, well, if that's what you want, off you go, be part of the Egyptians then. God answers him. Not the answer he was looking for, not a great explanation to the why. But God's first response is one of grace to Moses. And I think as we look through this passage, I hope we'll see that everything God has to say is grace from first to last. It's all about grace. I think Moses had no issue representing God, provided things worked out. Provided it all wrapped up in a nice little package with no mess or fuss. Uh, but you know, the first sign of failure, he's ready to throw in the towel. And, and he's ready to distance himself from God. I had this, this thought that Moses might have, you know, between Israel kind of turning their back on him and Pharaoh rejecting him as well, he must have reflected on the message God had given him and gone, this is crazy. Of course, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an absolutely crazy message. What king in his right mind is going to let all these people go out of his country to form their own nation when they could probably form an army and defeat him? He's cr- and who's going to give up an, an unlimited supply of free labor? Oh, how many businesses would like that? And of course Israel have turned against me. I mean, look, I've just made their conditions harsher. They're not going to listen to me. This is absolutely crazy. It's like this message was, uh, was foolishness to a Gentile king and a stumbling block to the Jewish people. I think I might have heard that before somewhere else. I think Moses had come back to God in, in essence to say, God, your words aren't enough. The words you've given me, they're not enough. If I'm going to convince Pharaoh and Israel, I actually need something more. I mean, they're never going to listen to me the way I'm going. I mean, who would listen to me? I'm 80, I've got a stutter, I've caused trouble, I've got a past. I'm just never going to be able to convince Pharaoh and Israel unless you give me something more. And that's just it, isn't it? 
When we read this, did, it, did anybody hear or pick up the word, uh, therefore go and convince Pharaoh and Israel of the truth of my word? It's just not there. That's the point, isn't it? All God had called Moses to be was a faithful witness, faithful representative. God had called Moses to step out in faith and trust that as he spoke to Pharaoh and to Israel, Moses wouldn't be speaking his own words, but he'd be taking the very word of God. That as he spoke, God's word would be going forth and effecting change, bringing God's plan to fruition, even when Moses couldn't see or understand it, even when it didn't look like success, even when it didn't go as Moses planned. All God had called him to be was a faithful witness. God had, God, ultimately, God was going to triumph over evil. Ultimately, God was going to set Israel free. He was going to liberate them to be his people. And he was going to judge Egypt for the evil. But until then, God's promise was that he would be with Moses. Whenever Moses spoke, God would be there. Wherever Moses went, wherever he had to, had to talk to, wherever he had to see, whatever the circumstances he faced, Moses wasn't going to be alone. He was going to be there with God. God would be walking beside him every step of the way. We've heard about uh, God's name being translated as uh, I am that I am, I will be who I will be. Uh, and Reuben talked the other week about God's name meaning I am for you. And I think it's difficult to kind of capture God's name even in all of those things because, you know, Eugene Peterson translates God's name here as, as I am present. Another way of talking about God, you know, he says, I revealed myself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob um, as the strong God, as God Almighty, but by my name, and he puts in there, I am present. They didn't know me. You talk about grace from first to last, right? You know, Moses was ready to throw in the towel. And, uh, you know, God doesn't condemn him, but welcomes him back, recommissions him, doesn't tell him anything he hasn't already heard before. But then also gives him the gift of his presence. And I think that's what God wanted Moses to see, that the strength of his witness lay in God's presence with him. Moses dealt with failure um, in, in a similar way to, to what we do today. I actually don't think much has changed uh, in, in a few thousand years of the way we deal with, with things like failure. Uh, you know, a lot of people will say failure is, is part of life, part of growing up. It's there to make you stronger. Uh, you'll, you'll come out stronger on the other end. Every cloud has got a silver lining. Um, one I've heard a lot is, is God doesn't give you more than you can handle. I once had a staff member tell me that um, when she was struggling with both her parents um, and they both had a really serious illnesses. And for her, that gave her um, some hope. There's some light at the end of the tunnel. And as I've reflected on that over time, it's, it's become clear to me, and I, I don't want to offend anyone here, but it's, it's not a biblical statement to say God only gives you what you can handle. I've believed that myself at some time, and I think this story is, is kind of case in point. You know, God often gives us way more than we can handle. His promise is that he's going to be there with us in the midst of it, not that he's only going to give us what we can handle. Take that phrase to a logical conclusion for one, for one even in this passage right here. It's like God saying, I'm only going to give you what you can handle. It's like saying to the Israelites, oh, God's given you the slavery because he thinks you can handle it. It becomes absurd, right? What, is, what does God actually say about Israel's slavery here? 
I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will, I will free you from being slaves from them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Yeah, you can handle it. You know, God was going to judge evil. He was going to destroy evil. He was going to set Israel free from evil. I mean, that's not meant to say that we've got the strength and we can handle it. That's not the point of the story. It's meant to foreshadow the cross when God actually dealt evil its death blow, when God took on evil unto himself and destroyed it. And one day when God will actually make all things right, there will be no more evil, no more sin, no more death. He will wipe every tear away and everything will be put right. That's what it's meant to point towards. It's not meant to point towards us. It's not about God believing in us. God is not there to believe that you've got the power. In most cases, I know I don't have the power. It's ultimately up to God. It's about us believing in God. All our culture can tell us is that the answers to failure are inside us. It's about connecting with that spark of the divine, finding that inner resilience, finding that secret power, uh, that secret strength you've got. Maybe you're just afraid to use it. There's that movie, um, Coach Carter, where uh, uh, Samuel L. Jackson is a, is a basketball coach, and, and one of the uh, kids gets up and, and says this really memorable quote. He says, our, our greatest fear is not that we're inadequate, but that we're infinitely powerful as human beings. And, um, and I've thought about that for a while, and I thought, that's, that's absolute rubbish. I'm not infinitely powerful. I don't have the ability to walk through walls or to fly or to leap buildings in a single bound. I'm not Superman. I know who I am. I remember the, the uh, Baptist preacher, Robert Smith, he said at a conference, he said, uh, God, I'm nothing. I got a whole lot of nothing. But let's see what you do with a whole lot of nothing. You know? you know, for Moses, it meant that he was there to trust that uh, God's word was enough. That as he spoke and stepped out in faith, God would actually be at work to accomplish his plan. And I think, you know, as we as Christians, we too, we look to God's word, to God's presence for our strength. We know that God's word is no longer confined to uh, his speech or the words of scripture, but ultimately God's word is himself, right? It's his son. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word made his dwelling among us. That's Jesus, right? That's what God's Word is. God's Word is not just something He's spoken in the past, but ultimately God's Word is the gift of Himself. The Bible presents Jesus to us as, as the presence of God. You know, He's the incarnate presence of God. He's God with us, Emmanuel. He's God returned to dwell with His people. I mean, God, Jesus is the one that sends the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, God's empowering presence, the Spirit that hovered over the waters at creation Jesus sends that spirit to be with us and you know Jesus is enough he's an all-sufficient savior because on the cross he took on to himself all of our sin all of our brokenness and he dealt with it he dealt with evil he triumphed over it and he walked out of the grave three days later the church father um, Athanasius said Christ became all that we are so that we could become all that he is you know, by God's grace, Jesus' life is our life, his death is our death, and his resurrection will one day be our resurrection. And then Jesus said to his disciples after he was raised from the dead, stay in Jerusalem, you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit, and you will be my 
witnesses. Now the strength of our witness comes from God's presence with us. That's exactly what God wanted Moses to know. It didn't, the strength of his witness didn't lie in his ability to speak. It didn't lie in his age, his past, in who he thought he had a connection with, in his failure. The strength of his witness lay in God's presence with him. The I am present would be with him wherever he was. That's the strength of Moses' witness, regardless of how good he could speak. Many years ago, um, I did a, a bunch of temp jobs. Uh, and uh, one of the temp jobs I did was, was working at the head office for the warehouse. I didn't get a red shirt, which I'm still a little bit miffed about. But um, we worked in the jewelry DC, and uh, you know, it's... You know, calling it an office is, is, uh, is kind. We work behind two bulletproof glass doors in a bunker with no windows. Not the most fulfilling job I've ever done. You know, look, there were two managers in this office. Uh, one of them was a quiet guy. He was a Hindu. Kind of kept himself. The other guy was, was an atheist and very much an outspoken critic of the church. His favorite activity uh, to do in this office was to, to say things to get me to argue with him. Uh, he'd say things like, I'm, I'm glad I'm going to hell. There's going to be a great party down there. All the best people have gone there. Oh, it just makes me so angry. Oh, I'm even getting angry thinking about it now. Uh, and and the, the one, he just had a real thing. He did not like Destiny Church at all. And he'd say to me, oh man, you know what you should do? Forget that business degree. Go and become a pastor. You get 10% of everyone's income. Oh, and that, that would just do it for me sometimes. I'd get so angry, my response was to jump in there and I'd make a passionate, well-reasoned defense of the Christian faith. I'd point out that he was an idiot, he was wrong, he was unfairly biased against Christians, just like I'm doing now. And I could never convince him of anything. You know, he'd, um, he'd just kind of smile, fold his arms, and then just chuck in another grenade. You know, what about this? What about that? And he'd just keep arguing, and he loved it. He just thought it was great. There actually was another Christian guy in the office, and, and guess what? He didn't say a word, never said anything. Lovely guy, um, probably late 50s, early 60s. He was doing the same job I was, but he'd been there for years. Um, he came over from the Philippines, and he was a lovely guy, but he really struggled with English. So one of these days... Um, one, one, one sort of, you know, late in the, in the year, both of these managers were out at some meeting. And he called me over to the, the Hindu manager's desk. You know, this is the quiet guy. And uh, he pointed out this magazine that was sitting on the desk. I'd never really noticed it before, but this was one he'd been bringing in week after week, year after year. Uh, one of those kind of publications his church put out. And uh, he pointed it out to me and said, look, look at this. And there it was, hiding under a couple of papers, he knew he didn't put it there. He knew someone would have had to go on and get it. And uh, sitting under a couple of papers, so I guess the guy didn't want anyone to know he was reading it. And as we stood there looking at this magazine, he turned to me and said, you shout, you argue, they don't listen. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I mean, it was a pretty average magazine. I could have gone and said, well, that's not really that great, is it, eh? You see, but that kind of pointed out to me that, that for me, my faith lay in my ability to argue and to reason and to win arguments. And that's what I was really focused on. But to my friend, I mean, 
the victory belonged to God already, right? Jesus had won the victory on the cross, and that was enough for him. I mean, he knew that as someone who struggled with English, there'd just be no way he'd be able to keep up in an argument with these guys. It'd just be fruitless. They'd, they'd laugh him out of the place. He was old, okay? No, 50 to 60 is not old. My wife said, just don't say that. Sorry. If you are 50 to 60, you are not old, okay? Bless you, Brian. All right. Um, he was slightly older, um, and, you know, he... He had been working an entry-level job for years. He had no great career success to speak of. He wasn't a rich man. In fact, he was kind of someone you didn't even notice was there half the time in the office. He was going to be, though, a faithful witness who gloried in his weakness. He knew that if anyone uh, showed any interest in the gospel any interest in Jesus or the church or anything at all, uh, that could only be because God was at work in that office through him being a faithful witness. And that was it. He knew that as soon as that manager had picked up that magazine, God was working on that manager's heart in a way that all the best arguments in the world simply couldn't. There's a place for a rational defense of the Christian faith. There's There's a place for an argument or a public defense, but it's not every interaction we have with a non-believer. Being a faithful witness, the strength of our witness lies in God's presence with us. Not in our age, not in our status, not in our wealth, not in our education. It lies in God's presence with us. So I just want to make one last point about this passage, I remember being told that never believe a preacher when he says he's going to make one last point. Um, doesn't it bug you that God didn't, didn't go and speak to Pharaoh himself? Isn't it, isn't it strange? Why does God deal through an 80-year-old man with a stutter who doesn't even want to speak in the first place? It's crazy. Have a look at this. Turn with me, chapter 7, verse 1. Have a look at that. There's, there's, you know, Exodus is full of these strange things that God says and does, and this is one of them. See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. That's God saying to Moses, I've made you like God. What an odd thing to say. You know, that word um, like God is, is literally the word Elohim, which is the same word used to speak about God himself in the Old Testament. And uh, in this context, it's best translated as either God-like or in God's likeness. And we've heard that phrase somewhere else, haven't we? In God's likeness. Genesis 1, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Yeah. I think what God is doing here is deliberately taking Moses back right to the original vocation of human beings. What human beings were created to do. Human beings were the pinnacle of God's creation. The only creatures to bear his image and as such, they were there to be creatures who, uh, through whom God would extend his rule throughout the earth. They were there to reflect God's glory to every corner of creation. In fact, put another way, the way God has chosen to rule the earth is not by sidelining human beings, but through human beings. Bit of a crazy thought, eh? The way God has chosen to rule the earth is through people like you and me. 
And I think what that does is it gives us a much broader sense of what it means to be a faithful witness. Because, you know, part of being a faithful witness then is being faithfully present within creation, within the world, not hiding away in a holy huddle um, and separating ourselves from the world, but being faithfully present within it. And, um, you know, that means this kind of witness isn't sort of, you know, I come to church on Sunday and that's my, my Christian witness. It's, it's every facet of our lives. In fact, there's, there's no part of who I am, of what I do, or where I go that is not there to bear witness to the Lord. No part of my life that's exempt from being a faithful witness. It's both kind of liberating and a little bit scary because it means it's not just telling people about Jesus, but actually it's a lot more than just telling people about Jesus. Think about things like, like your friendships or your relationships. Now, now, often as Christians, we're quick to say these are great opportunities to, to share the gospel with people who don't know it. Absolutely. But I think God cares as much about how we're friends with people. You know, the, the kind of ways we conduct ourselves within those friendships. I mean, are we only friends with those who are going to give back to us and increase our standing? Help to, you know, are we only friends with people who are going to support our business? Help get our career a little bit further ahead? Do we only invite people over who are going to invite us back? It's not just our, uh, our workplaces that are, pla- that are opportunities to share the gospel, but it's how we do our work that matters to God just as much. How we conduct ourselves within the workplace. Um, the quality of the work itself, all of that can actually be uh, a faithful witness to God. Think about the people who work underneath you, who, who have, uh, I guess, a lower rank in the, in the organization. Uh, now, how do you talk to those people? Do you treat them like underlings and slaves uh, or as equal partners with you, as human beings who, who bear God's image with you? Or, I mean, if you are the person at the bottom of the rung, um, do you basically worship those above you to try and get the next step up in your career? God cares about how we are uh, how we conduct ourselves within the workplace as much as the opportunity to share the gospel with those in a workplace. It's not just what we believe about marriage that we want to uh, communicate in a public square. It's actually how we conduct ourselves within our marriages that actually can be just as powerful a witness. We don't need to marginalize one or the other. We need both. Uh, when, when your husband or your wife isn't around... Um, how do you speak about them? It's quite easy to jump on that bandwagon of, of complaining and wishing that they were always something else or doing something more. Uh, or do you find reasons to thank God for them, to pray for them, to bless them, to show them grace? You know, our marriages can actually be very powerful witnesses. When a, when a man and a woman come together wholly giving themselves to one another as Christ gave himself for the church, when they mutually submit to one another out of love and reverence for Christ, that's a powerful witness. I mean, think about the messages we get about marriage, marriage all day. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a 50-50 contract, right? I'll do my half, you do your half. I think you know, marriages like that are kind of doomed from the start because Christ didn't give us half of himself. 
God hasn't given us half of the Holy Spirit. If our marriages are meant there to reflect, uh, you know, how Christ has loved the church and given himself wholly for her, for her we can't give half of ourselves to our, to our spouses. It's an all-in kind of thing. You know, when husband and wife live out of God's grace, when they, they live out of God's mercy in their own lives, when their lives are centered on Jesus, uh, when, when husband and wife choose both to uh, offer love and forgiveness and mercy, when they've got every right to be angry, when they don't feel like it, that's, that's a powerful witness, right? When they choose love and forgiveness over resentment and hatred, that's a pretty powerful witness. I don't know about you, but um, I'm, I'm pretty far from perfect. Um, I'm sure my family and my wife will very much attest to that. But uh, I know there's many times where my actions just, they don't reflect uh, God's glory. They don't bear witness to the Lord. And there's, there's many times where I make uh, so many mistakes. Uh, but just come back to what we talked about earlier in this passage. Uh, God's first response to Moses was one of grace. This whole passage is God's grace from first to last. God knows we're going to mess up. God knows we're going to represent him poorly in this world. But where sin abounded, says Paul, grace superabounded. God has, has an abundant supply of grace for us that we just we simply cannot exhaust. There is nothing you can do to make God love you less. God will Never, ever stop loving you. God has an endless supply of grace for you. He calls us to step out in faith and to be a faithful witness and to represent him in this world. But man, when we get it wrong, God has got his arms open, ready to take us in, the, in a heartbeat. He's not just like a guy standing and saying, all right, you've got to come, and make, come to me. He's like the, the, the father of the prodigal son. He's up and he's running. He's running towards us. He pursues us. He relentlessly lets, never lets us go. And on top of that, he hasn't left us to get on with this job on our own. Wherever we go, however we witness for God, whatever we say, whatever we do for the Lord, God's with us and God is for us. Amen. Shall we pray? Father God, I thank you for your son, Jesus, for, the, for sending your son to die in our place so that we could be made new. Lord, I thank you that it is your presence with us that is the strength of our witness. Without your presence, Lord, we are nothing. Lord, I just thank you so much that you show us grace after grace after grace, that your first response to us is grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your son and for the grace and mercy you showed us through him on the cross. Lord, enable us and strengthen us to be your witnesses to this world, uh, to take your gospel to every corner, to bear witness for you in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We give you our lives, we give you our hearts, and we say to you, Lord, your will be done in our lives. And we thank you for this community and for our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit 
www.shore.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shore.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.